Busy Birds. Welcome to another episode of Mama Earth Talk. I'm your host, Maris Ganal. Realizing just how much waste we generate on a daily basis, I've set a personal goal not only to reduce, reuse, and recycle, but to also educate the world about sustainability and how each of us can help preserve our beautiful planet. Thanks for listening. Let's dig in. Did you know if we do not change our habits, by 2050, there will be more plastic in the ocean than fish? Our guest today is an award-winning environmental journalist, writer, speaker, and educator. She was handpicked to be trained by former U.S. Vice President Al Gore to give the Inconvenient Truth presentation. Crazy birds, without any further ado, I would like to welcome Candace Batista. Candace, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited that you reached out to me to join you on Mama Earth. I mean, Mama Earth, what could be better than that, right? <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to have you here. And I can't actually wait to share with our crazy birds your journey. And that kind of brings me to the first question. And that is, how did your sustainable journey actually start? I think I was actually born an environmentalist. I, I grew up in South Africa and I spent a lot of time with my family in safari, going to safari, very blessed to have been able to do that. And as a result of that, I really got to see animals in their natural environment. And I had a very strong passion for that very early on. My mom also worked at the uh, Anti-Cruelty League in South Africa, which is kind of like the SPCA in other parts of the world. So I was exposed to animals animals and animal rights very early on. So I used to bring home any stray animal that I could find. At one point, I had eight dogs, 10 cats, a bird, a fish, you name it. So it was obviously a problem when I was a kid. As I grew older, I started to learn a little bit more about the natural world. And I always knew that I had this love for the environment. And I also had a really interesting relationship with television. So having grown up in South Africa and having grown up during apartheid, you didn't really get to see a lot of stuff on television that the government didn't want you to see. So I was very fortunate to travel with my dad. And I lived in Australia for a while and lived in the US for a while. So I got to see a very different side of the world. And it made me question a lot of different things that were happening in my own country. Things that I was seeing on television when I was in Australia, as an example, things on the news about certain issues in the world at that time. And I just got very curious and, and started to really have this kind of love affair with journalism. And at that time, journalism was the, a real thing. Now it's become a bit tainted because of fake news and all that stuff. But true journalism is a very cool thing, actually. And it gives you such a, a powerful voice. So I just found a way to combine my love for television and my love for the environment and started my first real on-air gig at Canada's Weather Network, which is a national weather uh, station that looks at weather patterns across Canada and the world. They've got lots of different kinds of programming. And it was really there that I started to learn about climate change. And this was about 17, 16 years ago now. And that's how I got really engrossed in climate change, the climate change movement and uh, eco-living. Wow, that's amazing. Such a journey. And I'm really excited to actually be interviewing someone that's also from South Africa. So that's really cool. 
Candice, you've been in this industry for some time. And how would you say have the industry actually changed in the last few years with like the rise of social media? Like you've mentioned the fake news that, you know, everyone's always on about. But yeah, so so how has that changed? I think you can look at it two ways. So from my perspective, perspective, it's changed monumentally in the in the last five years. When I was talking about this 10 years ago, I used to actually host a television series called A Greener Toronto here in Canada that looked at how local Torontonians were fostering and facilitating environmental stewardship in a number of different ways. So I was talking about non-toxic skincare, organic food, reducing plastic waste, more than 10 years ago now. And at that time, it was very new. Like people were talking about it, but it certainly wasn't as widespread as it is today. Social media has certainly helped to push the green agenda uh, quite well. But there's also a lot of misinformation out there. So there's a lot of people that are working in the space. And you see a lot of it on Instagram where people are talking about different things, but there's not a lot of sources being cited. The important thing as a, as a, as a journalist for me is that if you're claiming something is bad for you, it's going to kill you, it's going to harm something in your body, it's going to harm the environment, bad for the ecosystem or whatever it is, it's really important to connect to those sources. It allows people to, one, look at you as a credible source, that you aren't just reading something on an Instagram post and then reposting that. And a really great example of this is the recent Amazon fire. So Yes, we knew that the Amazon was on fire for sure. There's absolutely no doubt that that was happening. But people were posting photographs of a forest on fire throughout Instagram where that wasn't even the Amazon forest. It was file footage. Now, as someone in a, as, a, as a journalist who works in television full time, I actually have two jobs. I work full time in television for uh, CTV, which is Canada's national network. And then I also have my own business, which is the EcoHub on the As a journalist on CTV, I can't show a picture. If I'm talking about, let's say, pollution in the Great Lakes, I can't show a photograph of a lake in China and claim that that's a lake here in Ontario. So it's very, very important today for people to really dig and find out where all the statistics are coming from, who's writing these policies. You can't just have blind trust. Um, And that's where the whole thing of fake news comes in, because if you're posting something and somebody calls you out and says, you know, hey, where's the source for this? They assume that you've done all the work, but asking for a source is never, in my opinion, a bad thing. You know, it just isn't. It's just as a journalist, it's something that we learn and it's kind of ingrained in us not to make statements based on something that we read on somebody else's blog or that kind of stuff. So I think social media is very important. It's played a very important role, but I think it's become the wild, wild west for information and it's becoming harder and harder for people to find reputable sources and to kind of get through all the noise. The other issue I find with Instagram specifically, so people that have bigger followings, when you're talking about people that have followings around two, three, four, five hundred thousand, 500,000, A lot of the times those people are looked at as authorities because they have such a big following when in fact that might not be the case. And it makes it harder for smaller accounts to stand out and to sift through all of that stuff. So it's, you know, trust the people, but it's, it's okay to ask for sources. And if you're writing an article, 
it's great to cite as many sources as possible. It just gives you more credibility, you know, and, and uh, social media is, is it's difficult. It's a difficult thing to navigate in our society for sure. Definitely. And I think, you know, especially now with social media, a lot of companies are using that tool to promote their greenwashing, whether it is a sustainable product or when someone has a green logo and it's all like, you know, leafy and it just looks like eco, then people sometimes automatically think, okay, this is a legit company. They are green. They care about the environment. But it's actually only when you do a little bit of more research that you realize that, you know, this product that they are selling it's not really all that it is. For me, that is that is something that's really important. And you've mentioned some of the ways that we need to ask for references, ask for resources, like where did they get this? How easy is it sometimes to distinguish whether something is a greenwash attempt or whether it's actually, you know, true? Like what, what would your best advice be to our crazy birds? So I think two things. I think number one, if you're reading an article from a blogger like myself, let's say you're on my website and you're reading an article and I've, you know, cited a whole bunch of references, click and go to those references, read them, see what they are. I'm not going to post references from other blogs. I'm most likely going to post references from journals. If it's I'm writing something that is more health or medical related, I'm going to look for uh, publicized studies that have been put into different kind of journals where the information has been made public. As an example, um, universities are a great way to research and, and look for some of that information as well. When it comes to companies, it's a little bit different. So when you're shopping for an item, and yes, greenwashing is a major issue, and that's most likely, or not most likely, that is because there is very little legislation in place to protect consumers. And if you look at green beauty as an example, this is one area where we need better legislation because a company can put that this product is organic when it only has like 1% of an organic blueberry and all the other ingredients are either synthetic or not natural, which it's not the end of the world if something is not natural. There's That's a whole other conversation. But I think in terms of greenwashing, it's important to research the company. If you're not sure, especially with green beauty, if you're not sure about what the product has in it, ask the brand. If they're not willing to give you that information, I would be very suspect to that. Transparency is key. When it comes to fashion, same thing. Where is the fabric coming from? Have you been to the factory? Where is it made? Is it made in Canada? Is it made in China? Is it made in Denmark or wherever? wherever? It's really important to ask those questions. The other thing is there's, there's no really true sustainable product, whether it's eco or not. It has an impact on the environment. So whether it's cotton or organic cotton, the impact is very different because cotton is highly pesticide sprayed. It's one of the most or if not the most uh, pesticide laden crop on the planet. So, yes, organic cotton is better, but there is still an impact. There is still growing the organic cotton, harvesting the organic cotton. There is still impact. And, and that's just the nature of our world. We are a world of consumption, unfortunately. And everything that we buy has an effect on the natural world and on other people in other parts of the world. So we can't get away from that. The important thing is to align yourself with brands that are trying to do better. And that's where research comes in. Like you are your best defense 
research, ask questions. If you're reading a blog and it's interesting, write to the writer, ask them questions. If it's on a bigger platform, you know, go to social media. This is what's great about social media and ask a question on that person's page. A lot of the time, if you're making that question public, the brand will be more inclined to answer you because they want to they want to show people that they're engaging with their consumers. But yes, greenwashing is a major, major issue. And it's across the board, no matter what brand or what category you're looking at, it's prevalent in the industry, in consumption, for sure. Definitely. And I do think what you've mentioned as well, you know, that we need to look at the entire process. And for me, with circular economy as well, you know, you need to kind of look at the entire loop. And also, one of the things that I like to look at when I want to purchase a product is when I'm done with this product, what happens to it? Like, is it something that's going to end up in a landfill? Is it something that the company will say to me, listen, when you're done with this product, we will take it off your hands. And this is how we responsibly either upcycle it or how we actually recycle it. So that is something that that I feel is so important. And again, it comes because of questions, because you are asking like, what happens to that gene? Like, I sometimes feel that it's not good enough for a company just to say like, oh, yeah, we supply you with all this stuff. But once it's done, I don't know, just put it on the landfill, (laughs) you know? Exactly. I actually call it, it's great that you brought that up. I actually call it pre-cycling. I read about pre-cycling in a book a long, long time ago. And it's the concept exactly of what you're talking about is when you're buying a product before you've even thought about paying for that product and bringing it home, what is the end of life of that product? And that's a really, really important thing for all of us, for sure. It's, um, you know, circular economy is such a great concept. We don't have the infrastructure in place uh, when it comes to technology to do that at a large scale yet. I'm hoping that, you know, younger people that are part of, you know, the global climate strikes, they're thinking about these things, which is, which is for someone like me, who's been doing this a really, really long time, it's been really uplifting and and hopeful for me to see young people stepping up to the plate because we've got adults who are behaving like children and children who are behaving like adults. And hopefully those children who will be adults soon will have the power to vote the people that they want in that will allow us to move into this direction. Because honestly, we don't have a choice. We're, We're at a tipping point. Definitely. I think that is so important. And I mean, with the climate strikes that's happening globally, it's really had such an impact and everyone is talking about it. And for me, it's amazing that the youth is stepping up. They are demanding change. And I just wish that we could have done something a bit sooner, but like the time is now, we need to act now because they won't be a chance, you know, further down the line if we just continue as is. I mean, currently we're using like 1.75 Earth's resources every single year. So that's almost double what we can cope with. So if we don't act now, you know, what's going to happen to us? We probably won't have a future to like look forward to. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. So you've also been involved with a lot of TV shows that kind of focus on the environment. Why would you say shows like this is important? 
I think just because it raises awareness and education. You know, when I was doing um, reporting on eco 10 years ago, there wasn't anything on the news at all. Now we definitely see more coverage mainstream, you know, even the channel that I work for, I've done segments on two different shows within that network. One is a morning show called Your Morning, um, which would be equivalent if you lived in the States as an example, like Good Morning America kind of idea. So it's a, a morning news talk show information. So I've done lots of educational pieces on that around plastic waste, around reducing plastic waste, teaching people how to reuse things that they already have in their home. The other show that I work with is a daytime talk show. It's the number one talk show in Canada called The Marilyn Dennis Show. Marilyn Dennis is a Canadian icon in television, so it's very cool to be a part of her journey as well. And we've been talking about green for 10 years now on that show. We're definitely covering more topics now. It's so important. Without education and without showing people what's actually happening in the world. And you really can't do that in other any other way other than a visual medium, whether it's through photos or videographer, a video rather. You know, if people can't connect and they don't see the issues, they can't make change. They can't sit back and say, oh, wow, that's something I didn't know that I, you know, that's something I can certainly try and fix in my own home. So I think it's, it's very important. And But again, coming back to just being aware of where you're getting that information from, that it's a, a trusted source and that there's good journalistic practices in place because misinformation is the worst thing in the world. And we've seen what misinformation can do. We've seen it in politics. We've seen it in the climate strike. We've seen it in lots of different areas. So it's important to remember where you're getting your information from. So uh, television is a very important medium when it comes to educating the public on what is happening around the world. Definitely. I couldn't agree with you anymore. It's amazing. So on that as well, you have been handpicked to be trained by Al Gore to give inconvenient truth presentations. What was that experience like? If you can share a little bit with our crazy birds about that. Sure. So that was a long time ago, I would say in the middle maybe of my career. So maybe like six or eight years ago, the organization that Al Gore was running at that time was looking for key people in certain cities around the world to be taught by him to give his inconvenient truth presentation. So the one that you see in the movie where he's standing in front of the big screen and there's all this stuff happening behind you. So it was very cool. At that time, there wasn't really a lot of people in Canada doing what I was doing. I had a very successful eco television show. I was working on a documentary series called Global Footprints at the same time. I was covering all of the eco events in the city and really nobody else was doing that. So it was very cool to be chosen uh, by the Canadian group to go down to Nashville and meet him and be a part of a much larger group of people that came from all over the world to learn how to give this uh, speech, basically. It was a very neat experience. It was all volunteer-based. I got to go to tons of different schools and different events and talk a lot about climate and climate change. And at that time, there were lots of, just like today, lots of climate deniers So it was always very interesting when you're giving a presentation and there's someone in the audience yelling at you that it's, you know, BS and it doesn't exist. And, and, you know, those people, I just don't have time for those people anymore. You know, the science is there. Wake up. 
You know, I just, I don't even, if somebody is a denier and they try to get into a debate with me, I'm debated out. I I spent so much time in my early career trying to convince people Mm. and getting so tired by it and just realizing that it wasn't achieving anything. I, I wasn't achieving anything. So I have no time for those people at all. But yes, it was a really an amazing experience. And I learned a lot more than I already knew. And I got to spread awareness to lots of really young people much early on, which was which was kind of a neat thing. And he's he was an inspiration. He was extremely charismatic. He just kind of hung on to every word, you know, like it was very powerful. It was a very powerful experience for sure. Well, so that was quite a few years back. When you look at the documentary and you look at everything, what would you say, what type of effect that the inconvenient truth had? Like, what was your general effect or experience when people heard you talk about it and after they've seen the presentation and obviously now the the documentary as well? I think it was twofold. I think on the one hand, lots of people upset, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. Is it going to get worse? And the interesting thing is all of the things that Al Gore said were going to happen have happened. Mm. They haven't been in some parts of the world. They've been, you know, chaos. There's been rising temperatures. There's been rising sea level. There's been flood. There's been drought in other parts of the world. And a lot of the times it's affecting people that are living in the third world. And if you look at that presentation and you look at things that he was saying in the first movie, not the second one, a lot of the things that he said, almost 99% of the things that he said have come to fruition. We've seen the temperatures rise. We've seen the Arctic ice caps melt. All those things have happened. The interesting thing is that there's always been climate deniers, people that say that the weather, if it's cold outside, there's no such thing as climate change or global warming. As someone who spent a lot of time in weather and meteorology, climate and weather are two different things. It doesn't mean if someone, if it's snowing here, that that means that climate change does not exist or there's no such thing as global warming. It's a very complicated conversation to have in a short period of time. I think that at the time when that movie came out, people were surprised. I think there wasn't as much education and as much, yeah, there wasn't as much information and education as there is today. When you look at today, you see all the statistics and you see the weather rising and all those things. You know, when that movie came out, I don't think social media even existed. I don't think it did. Like when I was giving that presentation, I don't think Facebook, I think Facebook might have just come about. So it was a very different time. It wasn't as weird as it is today. And today everyone has an opinion, you know, and that's what social media does. It gives everybody the right to have an opinion. And I'm not saying that that's not right, but it's a lot of the time and and research has shown this is a lot of the time people, when they see a headline, they read the headline and the byline and that's all. Yeah. And they're actually reading the article. They're not going into the article and reading it. So when you look at the comment section of any environment, especially within the environmental movement, you can tell that people haven't read the article because if you actually read the article, you can see that the comments don't really match what the article is about. And that's the problem with catchy headlines, right? Is that they want to entice you to read the article. But studies have shown that people are not reading the articles, that they're reading the headline and making comments and assumptions based on the headline of the story. And that's a real issue because you're not really getting the full story. 
So it's a difficult question. I think that I think because Al Gore is a politician, he has a negative kind of connotation attached to him just for being a, a, a politician. You know, he's also got the entire fossil fuel industry against him. And people have to be aware of all the politics behind the scenes. A good example is people keep saying to me, oh, you know, Coca-Cola we should put a pollution tax on Coca-Cola and their bottles. And, you know, the government should do this. But what people don't realize, they don't make the connection, is that Coca-Cola is a plastic bottle manufacturer. They don't just make Coca-Cola. They make plastic bottles. That's their business. They buy virgin fossil fuels. They get unbelievable subsidies from the government to do that to make the bottles that the pop goes into. So the pop itself is one issue, like it's toxic garbage. Like I I would never put that even near my body, you know, um, and people get mad at me and I'm like, listen, it's it's all sugar and shit. That's what you're eating when you, when you have Coke and pop. But then you have the added shitty benefit of the plastic bottle and they have no incentive to do anything about it because they manufacture plastic and they are tied in with the government. So. You want it to be black and white, like let's save the planet. You know, let's all be on the same page. But we can't seem to get there because of politics, politicians, and social media. You know, social media is creating all of this this, this frenzy as well. And it makes it very hard for the average normal person to know what's real, what isn't, who do I trust, where do I go for my information. It makes it very, very challenging. Definitely. So when we look at like eco journalism, you know, if there is any of our crazy birds actually out there that, you know, want to do more for the environment and would like to actually start a career in eco journalism, what advice would you kind of give them? You have to have a very thick skin. Number one, you have to be ready for a lot of rejection. There's really only two people, three people in Canada that have been on TV talking. There's lots more now, bloggers and influencers and all those people. But at the beginning, you know, it was myself and a couple other people. It's not an easy job for a number of reasons. Number one is that when I first started in this industry, I had to be very careful what I said on TV about certain brands because some of those brands are major advertisers on the network. So you can't bite the horse that feeds you or shoot whatever that st- whatever that thing is, right? You know, so you can't say don't buy this toothpaste from so and so big company, think big company because it has triclosan in it. It's garbage. I can't say that on television because that big company is probably a major advertiser on the network. It's a very unfortunate thing. But that is the reality of the situation. And then we get into the argument, well, then how can anything be true journalism? It really depends on the network, right? It depends on the person. It depends on the network. So you have to be able to understand that. And you need to have a background in environmental work in order to be a a reputable on-air personality talking about it, right? So it's having schooling in something to do with environmental work, also having some kind of background in television, in journalism. You need to have journalistic skills. I went to school for journalism. I did a a degree in communications and environmentalism, and then I traveled for a year, and then I went back to school and did a postgraduate degree in broadcast journalism because I wanted to be able to tie those two things together. 
And it has not been easy, I have to tell you. It's been extremely hard to carve a niche out um, in this space. It's definitely easier today because of social media. You can create your own YouTube channel. You can create your own Instagram, your own blog. My advice is always to create great content on your own platform first, because you don't own anything on YouTube. You don't own anything on Instagram and they can close up shop instantly. And you, you would be like, oh, oh, I have 500 posts and 300,000 followers. That's all gone. So Mm -hmm. it's important to post on your own platforms and then drive that content to the other social media channels. And then if you build it up, TV stations now are starting to look at influencers as as experts. But trying to get into this industry, it's hard. It's very hard because it's kind of mainstream, but it's not really mainstream just yet. We're seeing a lot of it. We're seeing a lot of protesting. We're seeing a lot of media coverage. We're seeing all of that in the media, but we're not really seeing the grassroots things like this person is making beeswax wraps that help you to reduce the amount of plastic saran wrap and plastic baggies in your home. I think education is key. If you're young, looking at an education that combines both the journalism and something in the eco space. So whether that's looking at courses that are teaching you about being, you know, how to detox your home and then being able to parlay that to other people. So it's the same as any industry. It is a little bit harder because eco, it's not main mainstream in the media just yet. And I think, I think if it was, you would see a television show dedicated to it. And we just haven't seen that in the last few years. You know, we had we saw lots of that quite a bit. We had Planet Green a few years ago. You know, Oprah was doing when she was on her show, doing a whole lot of stuff about green. And then it kind of died out. We've seen a lot of the climate change and that kind of stuff come back into the news. But we haven't really seen a television show where it really teaches people how to live more sustainably, how to declutter your closet, how to actually shop for a capsule wardrobe. What is a capsule wardrobe? Mm-hmm. You know, all those kinds of things. Well, uh, we definitely need to grow some thicker skin and tackle this thing head on. So what has been one of your most important decisions that you've made around Mama Earth? Oh, my gosh. I think it was starting my my blog and really putting my 20 years of experience into a website where people can trust the information. Uh, it's a reputable source of information. And it's been an unbelievable amount of work. I don't think people realize how hard blogging actually is. Photographs, posting, reposting. It's an unbelievable amount of work to take on for one person. So I think, I, I guess that would be one of them. I mean, it's hard to say just because I've been doing this for so (laughs) long and I have bad days uh, where I feel like giving up. So yeah, it's hard to answer that. I I, I guess right now it would be just kind of the volume of work on my, on my website. Awesome. And I'm definitely going to link up to that in the show notes. So crazy birds can just go onto the show notes and click on that link. And now we are going to go into our final five. So the first one is what is one social media account or publication that you follow? Oh my gosh. Um, (laughs) I would say Fashion Takes Action, which is a non-for-profit organization here in Canada, is doing some wonderful work right now in textile diversion. And it's something that I find very, very interesting. And they just launched a huge campaign. I'm not tied to this campaign at all, 
I just find it very interesting. It's all about in Canada right now, 85% of the clothing that people are getting rid of is going to landfill. 85%, even the clothing that you're donating. So only 15% is getting uh, reused, re-upcycled or donated. So the work that they're doing right now is really, really awesome. I'm also really into EcoAge, which is a platform that is run by uh, Livia Firth. She's a famous, she's married to a famous actor. I can't remember who, who, but her, that page, EcoAge, it's great for great information. Zero Waste Collective is another woman, Tara. She runs that account and has some great information on the zero waste lifestyle. So there's a few, I, ca- I can't pick one. <laughs> awesome. And what is your hope for Mama Earth going forward? I think I'd like to see more legislation from governments. I think that leaving the solutions up to the consumer is not going to solve the crisis that we're in. We've already seen that. I think that the we're going to have to have governments that have the balls to stand up to the fossil fuel industry and say, you're polluting the environment, you're polluting our soil, our water, our air, and we're not going to let you do that anymore. I'm hopeful, but on the other hand, I also feel very hopeless sometimes. And that's because I think because I've been doing this for so long, I haven't seen real change yet. It's coming, I hope, but I haven't seen it yet. Awesome. And what advice can you give our crazy birds this week to help out Mama Earth? Honestly, it's to be mindful about the things that you purchase on a regular basis. I've been giving a lunch and learn talk for about 20 years now, and I start every lunch and learn presentation with that, where I show an example of a cell phone and I show how all the different components of the cell phone. So, for example, the plastic, all of that plastic is made from virgin fossil fuels. Where is that coming from? Then when you look at the the, the metal and some of the more uh, toxic elements that are inside the cell phone, where is all that being mined? I think people, my biggest advice would be for people to understand where their things are coming from. So the same way as we saw with the food movement, the slow food movement, the farm to table concept of connecting to your food, understanding who grew your food, where it's grown, how it's grown, those principles can be applied to beauty, looking at slow beauty, And they can apply to every product that we decide to bring into our homes. When I was younger, you know, my grandmother would buy things that would last. They were expensive. And we knew that this sweater, jacket, whatever it was, was going to stand the test of time. And we need to do that again. And we're just not doing that anymore. We're, we're just in this mindless consumption of buying stuff because this is what we see on television all the time. Television is a commercial. Every single thing that you watch is a commercial. So it's not buying into that and understanding that your decisions have an impact, not, on, not only on the natural world, from a sustainability standpoint, so from the extraction point of a all the stuff that goes into a cell phone as an example, but also remembering that a human touched that cell phone, that somebody assembled that phone. Somebody then put those phones on a truck. Then they were taken off the truck, put on a train, plane or automobile and shipped to your neighborhood where another person takes them off the truck and puts them on the shelf. So understanding that our things are actually connected to people And that's really the biggest advice that I have. It's honestly, I want to just say, stop buying so much shit. 
Exactly. And if we <laughs> if we stop buying crap, you know, the companies will stop making it or making as much, you know, because then it just ends up in a landfill and, you know, we, we buy and then we throw out. So what is one sustainability fact that you like to use in a room with people not yet on a sustainable journey? Um, there's two. The first one is the volume of plastic that is in the ocean. And it's not just large plastic, it's microfiber plastic. I don't think people realize the effects that microfiber plastic or microplastic, sorry, have on the environment. And I think when I connect people to the fact that when you eat fish, you are eating plastic, period. So sometimes that shocks people. They're like, what do you mean? That can't be. But that is the case. Most of the fish in the ocean uh, is eating plastic, little tiny bits of plastic that break off our clothes and the washing machine, as an example. But also the plastic the bottles and all the other garbage that's in the ocean, after time, they photodegrade. The sun breaks down those things into tinier and tinier pieces over years and years and years and years, hundreds of years. And all of that stuff is just floating around in the ocean. And I think when I give a local talk, people are very surprised to hear that that's happening right here in Canada, in our Great Lakes. So Canada has a, a body of fresh water called the Great Lakes. And there are many, many studies going on right now with the University of Toronto on fish in the Great Lakes. And what they're finding is they're all filled with plastic. They're ingesting plastic, they're eating plastic. And so I think people are very shocked by that. The other statistic is how much water, and this is a statistic that's been used so many times about how much water it takes to make a t-shirt or a pair of jeans. When you think about, you know, one t-shirt and the thousands of liters of water that go into that, it's like, you know, 10 swimming pools or something. I can't remember the fact off the top of my head, but it's facts like that where you can bring it down to, to people and put it into tangible terms where people think like, oh, that doesn't sound right. And a lot of the time they don't believe it because it sounds so out there. Like that can't be, yeah. there's no way that that could be happening, but it is. Unfortunately, exactly. it absolutely is happening. Wow. Yeah. yeah, no, that is, that is really shocking. And I think once people start hearing and, you know, seeing all of these things firsthand, you know, when you kind of connect with nature and you see these things happening in nature, it kind of shocks you. And for me, that is one of the things that I absolutely love to do is to connect with nature and to go back and see, number one, why is it important what I do? And when you see something harmful, and like you've mentioned with the plastic that's in the fish, if you actually look at those plastic items that they ingest, it actually looks similar to the colors of the food that they would normally eat. So they are confusing plastic for their food. And I mean, if we look at the plastic bags and the jelly, like the, that looks like jellyfish, to me and you, it's so clear that it's a plastic bag and it's not a jellyfish. But for a turtle that is swimming and hungry and think he's getting a meal, that's not so clear. So I think, you know, it's really important to know that even if you take that plastic back, you know, do you really need it? And where is it going to end up? Like, is it going to be recycled? You know, is like how much water is used for recycling? So it's things like that, that we need to kind of question us ourselves when, you know, we take actions like this and to know that if you just don't care, 
what effect does that have on the environment, but also on our health? Because now we're consuming that plastic. Yeah, there's a big argument. That's a great point. You know, there's a big argument online right now on Instagram where a lot of people are talking. There's two sides to the story. A lot of people are talking about the fact that going low waste or buying beeswax wraps is not going to save the planet. There's um, a very big disconnect between people that are making, trying to make changes in their home versus people that are trying to drive education around uh, climate change. The thing is, is that what what I what irritates me about the, that is that the fact is, is that a beeswax wrap means that there's less plastic going in the environment, period. If you are buying saran wrap on a daily basis, it's not being recycled. It is going into the garbage and it's going into landfill and it's breaking down and it's polluting the environment, period. There's no question about that. There's been a million studies and reports on this subject. Just you can literally Google it. It irritates me when you have people in the same space calling each other out. Yeah. No room for that, in my opinion. The fact is, is that I don't want to feel like an asshole. I don't want to feel like my my purchasing habits are having a negative effect on people of the planet. And I don't believe any low waste or zero waster has ever claimed that their practices are going to save the planet. They're not. I know they're not. I've never claimed that by me having a beeswax wrap as opposed to a, a plastic wrap or, or using a bar soap instead of a bottled soap in plastic. I've never, no one has ever claimed that that's going to save the planet. But the fact is, is those, those kinds of behaviors do add up and they do send a message. They send a message to the people that are making the products and they send a message to other people who may not be on a green journey just yet. So keep doing what you're doing. Don't listen to other people. Do what works for you. I don't ever put my beliefs on on somebody else. I've learned that when I first started this journey 20 years ago, I was very preachy and I was very much, the more I started learning about it and about plastic waste and about I, I was mad. I was angry. And I was, if I saw somebody doing it, I would be like, Hey, blah, blah. You know, I would get pissed off about it. But I realized, and I was much younger, you know, I was 20 years younger. And I realized that that's not going to get me anywhere in this world. It's just not. So it was a really great learning lesson for me to understand how to approach this kind of subject matter, because not everyone gets it. And people think that, you know, oh, if I see another Instagrammer posting another post on, you know, a mason jar, I'm going to go crazy because that's not going to save the planet. No one ever said it would, but it's about being mindful about the things that you're using. And for me, I couldn't not do it because I would feel terrible. I, you know, I'm doing everything that I can to be a better citizen, to be a better steward of the earth. And if that means that I'm going to share my favorite eco product with my readers, you need to just get over it. You know, I talk about heavy duty stuff on my website, politics and race and eco racism and eco anxiety, all of that stuff exists. But don't stop doing something because you think it's not enough. It can't, one person can change the world. We've seen it with Greta recently. We've seen it in the past with Mandela. We've seen it with Gandhi. It can happen. That's what you people have to keep in mind. Just do what works for you. Amazing. Well, talking about your blog and everything, where can people actually find you? 
So my blog is theecohub.ca. There is a ton of information on there. As I said, I'm going to be doing much more video in the next little while because that's my background, you know, as a, as a TV person. So lots more video content coming up. But it's a great resource for people who are either already in it, like already doing it and want extra information or next level information. And it's also a great place for people who are starting. There's lots of stuff that are small things that you can do in your home that help to facilitate change. And I cover a wide variety of topics. I cover everything from DIY, how to make your own cleaning products, how to make your own beeswax wraps, to, you know, how to uh, declutter your closet, to microfibers in plastic, uh, in fish is an example. And I have some great people that contribute to my website. World Animal Protection is one of them. Um, They do wonderful work around animal tourism and, and ethical animal tourism. So you learn lots about that as well. I partner also with Nature Canada, which is another really wonderful non-for-profit here in Canada that talks all about nature and the importance of nature. And there's a program called Women in Nature. And we spend, uh, volunteer our time to raise awareness about some of the more pressing um, environmental issues in Canada today. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I'm sure going to link up all of that as well as all your social media handles. So our crazy verse can just go to the show notes and click to that link. Candice, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've learned a lot and I'm sure our crazy birds have too. So yeah, just keep on, keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the show notes for this episode at mamaearthtalk.com. Follow at Design by Mariska on Instagram or email hello at mamaearthtalk.com. And let me know if there's a topic you'd like me to talk about. I love hearing from all you crazy birds. New episodes are uploaded every Monday. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss anything. Mama Earth has a voice and it's us crazy birds.